Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Today, I'm talking to Liz Walters. She's the new chair of the Ohio Democratic Party. We talk about the opportunities and challenges in that position and what the politics of Ohio mean to the rest of the country. Liz is also in her second term on the Summit County Council and currently serves as the council president. She's a strong progressive voice in a state that is currently run by Republicans. We talk about that and how her family's experience with the failures of the healthcare system led her into public service. Enjoy. Liz Walters, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's really great to be talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, so happy to be here and so honored that you asked. First, I got to start with uh, asking you about the snowstorm that's hitting right now. Uh, I'm out in California. I'm wearing shorts and flip-flops as we speak. How is your county holding up uh, with this latest round of, of storms? We're doing okay. You know, Northeast Ohioans are used to this. We're kind of bred for it. And so even though we had a you know probably a few inches overnight and expect to have more, this is really not anything out of the usual for us for this time of year. So we're we're lucky that the temps aren't too cold. And uh, I think, you know, everybody's still going to work and getting their everyday lives done. Good. That's, it's uh, glad to hear that and hang in there. Feel free to, when it's uh, safe again, come out and visit in California. And, uh, <laughs> thaw out. Uh, we'd love that. Love that. That'd be so great. We need some sunshine. The only thing we lack up here is uh, sunshine this time of year. I want to obviously ask you about your work at the county level. You and I, I think, agree that the county level of government is the most consequential level of government uh, to people's lives and probably the least understood. Absolutely. I want to start by uh, congratulating you on your selection as the new chair of the Ohio Democratic Party. Thank you so much. It was a very incredible experience to run for chair, having kind of been through and with and a part of the Ohio Democratic Party for most of my career. I was just so honored and uh, excited to take on this challenge and to have the support of so many leaders in state I respect as I took that journey. Really excited for it. Well, it's a, it's a big job in addition to your day job of managing, uh, trying to manage a county in the midst of a pandemic and economic crisis and everything else. Can you talk a little bit about what your vision is for the party and uh, where you think the challenges and opportunities lie? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It is a big job. You know, Ohio Democrats, I think, have gotten a little bit of a bad rap in the last few years. because We've had some tough cycles. But I think that the future of Ohio is really an important conversation, not just for Ohioans, but for the rest of the country, right? We are a very diverse state. Uh, winning here involves building a multiracial coalition that stretches across different economic levels. And so I think if we can find that model of how we win in Ohio, you can really win pretty much anywhere in the country. And so our work ahead and what we need to focus on in Ohio, we've had uh, a lot of kind of under underrepresented or undersold successes in the last two years, won three Supreme Court races at the state level. So we're you know just one seat away from flipping control of the court to Democrats and have had some other meaningful small victories around the state in electing a lot more folks to local office. 
but right now, and what's important here in Ohio is to kind of level up our game to the next, to the next notch. And for us, that means really focusing on having a comprehensive strategy to build back strength statewide. So that good candidate campaign to run for the Senate, to run for governor and, and for more Supreme court seats, can kind of take that strength and run it over the finish line to a win. Ohio is a little more complex than most, right? Building that coalition in Ohio means having candidates who can uh, appeal to voters of color, who can appeal to young people, women, uh, who can appeal to folks who live in cities, but also who people who live in Appalachia and rural Ohio. And so we have uh, that focus on the grassroots is really important for us because in order to connect in all those places, we have to be in meaningful relationships, not just with our volunteers, but also with our voters. And then I think the other you know, big piece of the work ahead for us in Ohio is building an accountability comms and research operation that really tells the story of what corrupt Republican leadership looks like over a long period of time. You know, our last two speakers of the House, both Republican, have been arrested in increasingly large bribery schemes to taking, you know, bailouts and backroom deals for big corporate interests. And they're not going to tell that story about themselves to the voters. That's up to us. So we really have to go out and start talking about the cost of this for our voters and what it's costing them in real dollars, what it's costing them in lost opportunities, and in some cases, what it's costing them in real lives to have this failed leadership at the state level. So I think when we look ahead for the Ohio Democratic Party, those are top on the list of our priorities for what we'll be tackling in the next six months, 12 months, two years, four years, all with that aim of having uh, success at the ballot. Uh, we have a very exciting opportunity here in 2022 with an open Senate seat and also a chance to elect uh, new leadership at the state level. And we're excited for it. Yeah. Can you talk about that opportunity in 2022? Senator Portman has decided not to seek reelection. Uh, what does that look like for uh, for the Ohio Democratic Party? Yeah. So Portman announced his retirement on my sixth day as chair. And I kind of jokingly told folks, well, like if this is my sixth day, I'm vanquishing incumbent senators. What's going to happen in two years? I might have reached my peak already. Um, I think you're, you're going to get blamed for uh, for a lot of things that aren't your fault. You might as well take some uh, take some credit for for, for his decision. Exactly. That's uh, so what I'm trying to do. Uh, but I think, you know, looking ahead in Ohio in 22. I think it's important for you know, all of our friends around the country who remember this version of Ohio where it was the top battleground and there were these intense fights and they, a lot of folks have kind of written us off in the last few years. And I, I just disagree with that. I think most people who live here and work here and want to build their lives here also disagree with that, that we're not a competitive state anymore. I think we absolutely are. And in 2022, we are going to see that in a different way. You know, when you look back at the last few cycles from 2016 to 2018 and then to 2020, the state just performs differently when Trump's not on the ballot. So he, while Trump won the state in 2016 and 2020, in 2018, we reelected Senator Sher Brown. We came within two points of winning the governor's race and a lot of down ticket races. And so with Trump not on the ballot in 22 and with a, you know, an increased emphasis from our party on, on building the right structures we need to win and withholding Republicans accountable, you know, I'm very excited about the opportunity. And I'm we have a host of candidates who've stepped forward to express their interest in this seat. They're all dynamic. They're interesting. They are passionate about uh, doing what's right for the working families of Ohio. And so I think that no matter what, we are going to end up with a dynamic, a diverse, energetic ticket that is going to inspire not just Ohio voters, but a lot of more kind of investment from those national partners that we need to succeed. 
And so, you know, open Senate seats come along maybe once every 20 years. So we're excited to take on this fight and build what we need to win. And that's really the focus of the party right now is being focused on building the strongest organization we can so that we can use these opportunities, not just to win in 22, but to build strength for the long term. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about help us understand Ohio? Uh, You know, many of us in our every four years in our presidential map projections, you know, color code Ohio one way or another way, but it's, it's, it has been a long time swing state and it's a vital state for either party. Can you talk a little bit about what don't, doesn't the national media or those of us on the coast understand about Ohio? There's so much I could say in answer to this. And as a, I'm a, I think most people you'll find that are one, Ohioans are everywhere. If you live on the coast, you probably know someone who's from Ohio. So we stay here, but they also end up all over the country. And most of us share something in common, which is we are deeply passionate about our state. I think here more than any other place, you'll find people who we wear Ohio themed t-shirts and jewelry and other things all the time, like your zip code, your area code on your phone number, the shape of the state. Uh, It's kind of a, a point of pride for Ohioans. But what a lot of folks often miss is that it is a very diverse state. And by diverse, I don't just mean by race. We are truly kind of a 13 states within a state, right, where we have a flatland rural agricultural community. We have a set of counties that are truly Appalachian counties. We have suburbs, we have cities, big and small. We have huge hubs of industry, education and technology, but also parts of the state that have truly become like national or state-based wilderness recreation areas. So it just really is is a greatly diverse place. And it's also, I think, an important part for national folks to understand is we're often kind of boxed into this binary choice of, well, as, as Democrats or progressives, we either are going to work in communities of color and mobilize voters of color, or we're going to work with young people and mobilize young people, or we're going to work in the suburbs, you know, insert those choices. But in a place like Ohio, it's all of the above. In order for Democrats to be competitive, we need those compelling stories that really speak to not just our cultural identities or our racial identities, but also the economic realities of the state, right? I think Ohio is a place where we see both the great successes as the country is modernized. You know, you come to Columbus, it's considered one of the largest cities in the country, very fast growing. It's considered a place where Black entrepreneurs or LGBTQ entrepreneurs or women entrepreneurs have high levels of success. So we have all those great assets too. But then you also get out to places like, you know, Youngstown in the Mahoning Valley, where we're still trying to navigate what a life in post-manufacturing America looks like, or how we revive those kind of manufacturing towns that have driven huge parts of our economy for decades, as trade and automation and other external factors have pressed down on those workplaces and those markets. So it's just a, it's a place where there's no single answer, and we have to really have that compelling economic message that speaks to people at all points and that unites people in kind of that multiracial coalition around concepts of economic justice and fairness. And I think that's often something that coastal folks get wrong about Ohio is they, we come in and think that these races are about, or that campaigns are about uh, something maybe more complex or, you know, more rooted in national narrative. And that's just not the case. We certainly know, I know a lot of Ohioans through the New Deal and other organizations, and there are these really amazing local leaders all across Ohio doing 
the most mm-hmm. innovative work. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to been, you know, part of progressive leadership at the local level under state Republican leadership and the challenges and how you've kept optimistic and engaged during that time? Yes. And it's a great question. And I kind of goes to your last point too, which is uh, I'll, I'll add one final point is that I think a lot of national folks look at Ohio and see a red state, but the truth is at the local level, Ohio is dominated by democratic leadership, right? At the city level, at the county level, it's still a very democratic state. And and particularly in the last, you know, like, let's say year living in Ohio and being a local leader during the pandemic has been both inspiring because our local leadership at our city and county level have been incredibly innovative and in trying to respond to the needs of our communities as we've all struggled to make sense of both what is happening and how we all get through this. But it's also been deeply frustrating because there were often times where we felt like we didn't have any partners, that we were in it on our own and we were were in it alone. Even, you know, aid packages from DC or from the state were clearly structured without anybody in local leadership at the table, or at least without those voices being taken seriously uh, because some of the red tape or some of the, I think, conceptual frameworks that were used to put those aid packages together were just not really rooted in the reality of local government or for that matter, rooted in the reality of the needs of working people and what they were struggling through. So that could be very, very frustrating. But, you know, you find hope because in, at least in county government and city government, I just am continually blown away by the public servants who make up our workforce and their ability to be creative, their ability to innovate, their flexibility, their willingness to do what it takes to help the people in their communities. And so I think looking towards our own staff, our own leaders at the county level just continuously gave me you know, inspiration and, and helped me stay motivated to keep focused and, and do the work. You know, I, I keep thinking about our director of emergency management and our some of our staff who were running our um, response center during those first few months of COVID. And, you know, they put together a schedule so that if one of them went down with COVID, another one would be there to take its place. And they, they worked it out in a way so no one would burn out. And I remember hearing those discussions and having them walk through all that with us and just being so blown away by the level of folks' commitment and willingness to, you know, do this hard work and put themselves at risk, but also ensure that the people in our community never saw a break in their services or never, you were never affected by anything happening inside county government and coping with illness. So I think that's really what kept me really inspired. Yeah, it, and it's amazing the way, you know, it really started as a sprint and now it's turned into an ultra marathon. <laughs> yes, um, uh, for and the sure. same people are, are, have kept at it. Yep. I do. I significantly worry about burnout at the local level. I know we see, you see all the time, you know, the con- everything happening in, in Congress and at the federal level. And, and by, by all means, that is important and hard. But I, I think a lot about how, our kind of everyday public servants in county government are, they have been working nonstop uh, for the last almost going on a year now at a pace, which is really not going to be sustainable and they need some relief and they need more help. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I've, I actually, I, I worry it's the untold story that the mental health for our local leaders mm-hmm. and especially, especially for, 
for women leaders who get uh, attacked in an entirely uh, different misogynistic way. Yeah. While they're managing multiple crises is, um, I do, I, I worry about our colleagues and their ability to, to continue on and, you know, that their, their health and happiness as people. Yes. Agreed. So let's talk a little bit about your, your day job of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, being the at-large on the at-large seat in the County Council in Summit County, which is uh, home to Akron. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, you've been in the office since 2016. Can you talk about Mm -hmm. priorities, your work, what your day is like, what that looks like, even if you can remember back uh, your pre-pandemic life in county government? So county government in Ohio is, uh, we are kind of an anomaly in Summit County. We are one of only two counties in the state that has a executive model or a charter form of government. Most counties in Ohio are run through the commissioner system. So there's, it's a three commissioner panel that governs ca- the county. Uh, in the, back in like 1979, I believe, Summit County voters uh, decided to change our form of government and move it to an executive and a council model. So county council essentially serves as the legislative body for county government. We have a strong executive model. So the executive, the best I can compare it to for most folks, it's kind of like having a mayor and a city council, but for the county, for the whole county. So we have uh, eight districts at the county level and then three at-large members, of which I'm one. And our role on council is really to oversee in a very specific narrow lanes of where we legislate policy. Because we're chartered government, we can be a little more proactive than most of our counterparts around the state. And so where we're not bound by Ohio revised code or guided by some state statute, we kind of live in that space and we do work around our employment statute. We do work around kind of helping innovate where we can in our admission and administration of services, of being in partnership and coalition with other folks in the county. And we oversee the budget process. So we are the kind of oversight arm of the financial operation of the county, both for the executive, which represents about 12 departments from like sanitary sewers and job and family services and down the line, but also our other constitutional office holders in the county, which are, um, you know, the kind of more traditional roles of a fiscal officer, clerk of court, sheriff, engineer, et cetera. So, you know, there's not really a lot to... Too much excitement day to day. County government, though, a little bit uh, stayed sometimes. It's, it's very, um, in, in a good way, very consistent and very, we're very much guided by kind of re- revised code. Essentially, counties operate as the administrative arm of state government. So we don't have a lot of program that isn't already in existence uh, as defined by the state. And so I think for us, you know, day to day life is often about either kind of overseeing our agenda for the week of what are we voting on, what a lot of our consistent matters coming before the body have to do with contracting, bidding, staff changes, adjustments to appropriations for different departments for line items in their budget. And then where we're growing or changing and doing something new, kind of weighing in and advising on how we establish the program or establish the, the resolution or the law or the motion that puts into process some of these pieces. And so I think, you know, day to day, it's, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. And when things come up, we, uh, anything that needs our immediate attention, it usually has to do with personnel matters or uh, some kind of 
big budget issue that kind of came up uh, unexpectedly or last minute. This is again, pre-COVID. Um, and then also kind of what with council, our role is depending on each individual council member, we kind of lean in and engage in different areas that we find interesting or have expertise in. So for example, my first policy joining council, my first priority was providing paid parental leave for all of our employees. So going through that process took a bit of time to both learn from other parts of the state that have done this work and get, get best practices, work with all of our office holders to establish their own, like kind of get their buy-in on what we were trying to do. And so it was really a matter of updating our employment code, right? Writing policy to update our employment code. And uh, we passed the bill unanimously and we are still to this day, the only county in the state that provides paid parental leave for all of our employees, which is pretty shocking in, in 2021. That is shocking. Yeah. It's not, you know, some of those more, prog- what I, it's interesting to me that we, we view paid parental leave as a progressive policy. Cause to me, it's, you know, we, there's just so much data that shows having paid parental leave is good for mom's health, good for baby's health, good for the health of our economy, good for the health of our communities. And a, as an employer, makes us much more competitive uh, and, and in keeping with uh, kind of norms around the country, but it is just still not considered a norm in, in far too many places. So, you know, and if nothing else, as we do stuff like this, we can also be a leader for others to show them that this kind of work is possible and it, it's affordable. It's the right thing to do. It makes us stronger, but, you know, looking forward into an example of like how, how we've engaged during COVID, spent some time working in philanthropy. Uh, and it's very normal for most of our council people to have full-time jobs outside of council because council is considered a part-time role uh, at the county level. So I was wearing a kind of a couple different hats over the years in my day job. So I call my day job. And so we, with some of our CARES Act dollars, we set up a fund with our community foundation to provide direct relief to nonprofits who are providing direct services and who had seen a huge spike in demand as a result of COVID and the following economic downturn. And so, you know, I spent a long time working with our foundation leaders, our nonprofit service sector leaders to put together the program, understand our, you know, both what we were required to do by the federal law, but then also trying to create a program that was also based in reality of understanding that organizations needed unrestricted money, right? We needed not to be overly prescriptive on how they spent those dollars, so that that's another example of a way that, you know, members can kind of spend their time on projects where they have a unique set of skills or interests to help run stuff at the county level. And can I just dork out for a moment and apologies to our sure. listeners, but, but I think it's really interesting when you have at large seats and district seats, the different mm-hmm. roles that people play. So can you talk about sort of what the difference is in your mindset or governing as an at-large member versus the members who are uh, district-based? Yeah. So I think the most interesting piece, this is another kind of insider nerdy government piece, is that as an at-large member, I'd probably get the least amount of constituent calls because usually people go to their district member first. And so I usually know if I get a call from a constituent, somebody's really messed up somewhere because somebody has to be really mad to not just hunt down their district member, but then also (laughs) reach out to me. So that's an important, I think, one important distinction. But I also think that, you know, district members are, you know, their their interest levels in terms of the stuff that they work on at the county level, at the, in the county broadly, and the kind of expertise they bring is usually pretty rooted in the dynamics of their district. So, 
you know, for example, we have a member in the southern part of our county who has a state park in her district and it was very focused on, you know, environmental regulation, on reforms we could do to ensure clean water systems. And most of it's because she's lived there. She has that expertise. She's very focused. And that's a big concern for the constituents in our district. And I also share that perspective. So we are able to work together on that space. The difference is I just am not as, as necessarily keyed into every single like local organization in that district that she had been working with or, or learning from. But I also, you know, I think sometimes there's like, it, it works both ways. There's pluses and minuses to we as, as at-large members, we're maybe not as in the minutia of hyper-local issues that pop up in city by city. But on the flip side, we are definitely involved in the, some of the more contentious issues all around the county, even though we may not be. So for, if there's a matter that comes up in one community, if it's very contentious and, and highly controversial, or there's a lot of kind of feelings about something that the county's working on, the at-large members I could participate in all of those matters. So we're always involved when it's tough. We don't always get to be involved in the really fun stuff at each local level because, you know, you just hear less from people when they're happy than, <laughs> than when they're upset. It's generally kind of our rule. But I also think that we, generally speaking, have, we play a different role in balancing the county response to issues because we see the big picture. So we're, and not to say that my colleagues who are in the in their own districts don't see it, but their their job is to be that advocate for the community in their district, just like that's my job. But I'm going to have a, a higher level perspective that says, okay, well, if we if we do this for community X, then the we're setting the expectation that we also have to do it for county community Y, which is on the other side of the county. Is this a practice we should keep doing? Can the county commit to doing this for everybody? so that there's that fairness and equitable treatment of the communities because, you know, our county seat is Akron. It's the biggest imprint in the county, but we also have 32 other communities and we have to balance the needs of everybody around the county with the work we do. And so I think that's something of uh, often a perspective that the at-large members have in a different way than district members. I think that's a really good explanation. I'm going to assume that you didn't uh, grow up wanting to be the, uh, at-large county <laughs> council for uh, for Summit County. Can you talk a little bit about what drew you into politics and policy and, you know, where this interest comes from? Yeah, definitely. And you're you're right. This was never on my, like, kindergarten list of what I wanted to be <laughs> when I grew up. Um, but I think, you know, I, after a lot, I think like a lot of people, I came into this work for deeply personal reasons because I experienced something when I was in my formative years, when I was in college, that just really kind of set me on a different path. So I grew up in a, a multi-generational household with a single mom. So my mom and I lived with her parents as I was growing up and it was lovely. Um, my my grandfather was a, a former seminarian and former Marine. So he was at once going to be a priest and then was a Marine and then went on to have seven kids. So wow. I had this big boisterous Irish Catholic family and you know, my grandma was just the sweetest woman and uh, really was kind of the heart of our family. And so I had the best of both worlds. I had a great mom, but I also had this great relationship with my grandparents and they were a huge part of my life growing up. And I went away to college. I kind of grew up because I had this multi-generational household. I had, you know, never really wanted for anything. My mom worked hard. She would work nights and weekends to give me a bunch of opportunities I probably otherwise wouldn't have had. And 
uh, went on to play college sports. It's, I, I went to like a lot of kids uh, kind of wanted out of my hometown and I got out of it through a athletic scholarship and some other, uh, you know, Pell grants and student loans, the way you put that, those pieces together and went away to school and had a great experience. And uh, my senior year of college, my grandfather who had already kind of come through cancer treatment once, he came out of remission uh, and was diagnosed again with cancer. And the reality is, and this is something I did not appreciate until this point in my life, was that my mom did not work in a hospital where she had had union representation. She did not have paid family leave. And really quickly, she exhausted her savings, all of her vacation time. And my grandfather, who had been, you know, a, a veteran, had a good pension from Firestone Tire and Rubber, he quickly fell into the Medicare donut hole, which was much different proposition before the healthcare reforms of about eight years ago. And so before I knew it, my family was facing this medical bankruptcy. And it was a complete, you know, eye-opening moment for me of just how delicate the economic balance in a family can be when you're working paycheck to paycheck, or you don't have those really important protections in the workplace or good policy, good, good practice about how we take care of people while they're dying. And it really kind of changed my life. And it put me in a much different on a different path. I kind of couldn't stop reading about some of this stuff. I got really interested in researching and reading about how kind of hospice policy and healthcare policy got to this point where people could be like, you know, we had, we had the best of of both worlds. I had this really big family. They all stepped up and helped chip in and take care of my grandfather, but it just wasn't enough to kind of protect the, my mom's financial stability. And so I um, actually went on to work. I went to grad school and started working nights at a local hospice. And I just saw all these families going through exactly what my family went through, right? They were hosting spaghetti dinners or 5K runs to raise money to help pay for their loved one's healthcare at the end of life. And I just thought, this is so wrong. This can't really be America. Like we can't be like we're, we're people have to host spaghetti dinners to pay for hospice care for their loved ones. That's wild to me. And so through the process of kind of learning more about this, I, I had also read this guy, Barack Obama's book called Dreams from My Father, where he talked a lot about his mom's own struggle with paying for healthcare at the end of her life. And I just so connected with it. And when he started running for president, I was all in. I'm like, this guy is incredible. Like I, he has the same, uh, had a same, similar life experience to me. All of his policies make so much sense to me. And so I started volunteering on his campaign. I'd, I'd go to school I'd go do a volunteer shift at the campaign office and then I'd go work my night shift at the hospital. And right as I was finishing grad school is when the campaign, it was really clear he was going to win the primary and they were staffing up in Ohio and they offered me a job. And I, I turned, I had had this other kind of government service job lined up after grad school and I turned it down and I uh, went and became a field organizer on the Obama campaign in 2008. And that was really how my journey into politics and public service started. I went on to work for the campaign and worked for my hometown congresswoman, Betty Sutton, for quite a few years, both in D.C. and at home, Uh, worked for organized labor for a while, and uh, actually worked for the state party for a couple of years, too. And then in uh, 2015, I I just needed to make a change. And my mom, who had been ill, so I wanted to come back home to Akron and came back home. And uh, there had been a at a, another story for another time, the city of Akron kind of went through a successive series of changes in the mayor's office. 
which started off this kind of set of musical chairs and uh, amongst some county office holders. And uh, all of a sudden there was this vacancy on county council. And I had been considering this run for the state Senate and the county executive at the time who has since passed, who I count as a dear friend and mentor, a guy named Russ Pry, came to me and said, I think you should not run for the Senate. I think you should drop out of that and come and get appointed to this vacancy on county council. Every member of council is over, I think, over 60. We need to start caring about the next generation of who's going to help lead the county forward in the future. I think this could be a great spot for you. And I think you could do a lot of good for the citizens of Summit County. And so it's one of those decisions where I knew instantly it was the right decision to make. And with his support, I successfully ran for a special election to that seat. And that was five years ago. So that's how I got into county government. Uh, it's kind of a long winding story, but that's really, and I will say, I never, to your point, I never really envisioned myself at the county level or really fully understood exactly all the good you can do for people in county government. But, you know, having like young members of our sheriff's department stop me and say, Hey, you know, I, I got to be home with my wife and our kid when, when they were born. And that was so transformative for our family. Thank you so much for passing that, that paid parental leave policy. Those are kind of the moments where, you know, the way that life works out makes sense. Cause you, there's so much incredible good you can do for people in county government because it touches the lives of so many people, both from your employees, because counties tend to be pretty large employers, but also all of our residents and the different ways that we impact their life has been a pretty amazing experience. Wow. What an incredible story, taking that personal pain and really applying it to, to public policy. Talk through for, for those who uh, have experienced it, but may not understand sort of why it happened or those those of us who are, you know, likely to experience that the sort of end of life care, the costs, the impact, what, what are the policy obstacles that are causing, you know, so many families to suffer at a time when they're already dealing with the hardship of loss? Yeah, I could, I don't know how much time we have on this podcast. <laughs> I could talk to you a long time about this issue. It's one of my you know, it's not something I get to work on in county government much, but it's something I'm deeply passionate about. So, and actually it kind of speaks a little bit to why when this opening for state chair came up and I decided to jump in into the race for it. And it, it was truly because I feel like there's more work to do and I want to be a part of restoring progressive leadership in my state so we can make meaningful change and particularly in this area, but among many others. So and I'm actually going to tell you a different story now, which is was kind of my renewal to organizing in this space was, so my mom's the oldest of seven girls. Um, yes, seven girls. <laughs> and I have this incredible like family dominated by strong women <laughs> and they're all uh, amazing. And I've just been so lucky to have that as like a, a, such a centering force in my life. And my mom's middle sister, a woman, a woman named Justine uh, was my, she's the fourth of seven and she was the only one of my aunts who never had any children of her own. And as a result, she was kind of the super aunt, right? She was involved in all of our lives. She was one of my Girl Scout leaders. She always made, like, I would have special nights at her house where all of, we'd all, all the cousins would get dropped off and she'd hop us up on sugar and chocolate and we'd watch movies till three in the morning. Like, just so <laughs> much fun. She was so great. And she just was this, you know, um, very quiet, but loving and proud woman. And, you know, she worked in food service most of her life. She worked uh, at fast food restaurants as an employee and eventually as a manager. And she also was sober. 
She got, uh, went through, had a struggle with alcohol abuse when we were all in kind of, not long after we lost my grandmother, actually. She had a really hard time with that. And she went to rehab for a 60-day inpatient stint and then was a loyal member of Alcoholics Anonymous for the rest of her life. And in so many profound ways, she showed us all how to love one another, but also how to you know, take care of ourselves and be willing to do hard work on ourselves in order to have a better life. In 2019, she, we just all noticed she was getting so, so skinny. And she kept putting off going to the doctor because McDonald's she worked for had gone through an ownership change. And she was in a mandatory waiting period to get back onto her health care. So even though she'd had health care before, when the ownership came in and took over, they rehired everybody as new employees. And she had to go through this mandatory waiting period. And so by the time she finally got in to see a doctor, she was uh, very, very ill. And they diagnosed her with stage four esophageal cancer. And we kind of all rallied the troops, came in to help as much as like my family is a lot of things. We can be crazy and chaotic and loud, but we're really good in a crisis. Having this many people in your family is such a blessing because there's always someone there to help out. And we really organized and kind of went with her on a journey where she tried treatment and that didn't work very well. And as we, it became clear that, you know, hospice was her best option. It was very frustrating because, you know, here's me and I, I acknowledge, right, I had such a better understanding of the system than the average consumer because I work in it and I see it and I know it. And so I was able to help be her advocate and na- navigate that system pretty quickly compared to most folks. And all I could think about the entire time we were doing that was, God, what do people without kids do? What do people who who don't have like this knowledge of you know, if you need to enroll in Medicaid, here's who you call to get qualified for Social Security quicker. Here's who you call. Like, I I just know those systems and been able to tap into like the district office of my U.S. senator. I knew to call them, right? Not everybody knows to call them. And they go on these really difficult journeys as a result. Um, and in the end, you know, the the reality was even though she was on Medicaid, even though she was very, very ill, there are just so many parts of the system that aren't set up. We're, we're just not set up to allow people to die uh, with any kind of comfort or dignity. And so, you know, unless you want to enroll your loved one in the Medicaid funded nursing home where they can get access to hospice services from an outside provider, that's pretty much your only option. And for so many of us, you know, it's kind of that ultimate choice between and for particularly for people who live paycheck to paycheck or the working poor, they often don't have family around them who can take the time off work to provide care for them. So they're less likely to receive treatment. They're less likely to receive care at home. When they are, it's usually not sufficient. So on Medicaid, you qualify for one hour visit a day. Well, if you're bed bound or there's some other mitigating factor, that's just not enough, right? And there's also not enough space in our nursing homes to actually care for all the people who are Medicaid eligible. So it's a perfect storm of not a big enough structural pieces to fill the need, but then not enough supports for the people who want to help care for their loved ones. So luckily for me, right, I had an employer who lived his values and was willing to give me flexibility so that I could work at night or that I could work on the weekends or, you know, and I had this really big family so that we had a schedule and, you know, one day one person would take her to the doctor and I would take her to, on another day. But in the end, she ended up, you know, she ended up coming to live with me and we administered home hospice through the result of a very big, very caring family and a very 
frankly lucky set of circumstances where we were able to provide that for her and not everyone's able to do that for their loved ones, even though they might want to. And so there's just all these different ways in which the healthcare system falls really short at the end of life because we don't treat it as the kind of important event that it is, not just for the person who is ill and dying, but also for the loved ones around them, right? We don't provide those supports. They're not baked into our policies. So, you know, there's, and I always think back to this is like, I, I worked for the Obama campaign. I was so inspired by his messaging, particularly around healthcare. And I was working on the Hill for my Congresswoman when we did the uh, ACA reform. And I think if, if you'll recall, one of the big divisive tactics that Republicans used was this whole notion of death panels, right? That Democrats want to institute death panels to kill off your loved ones. But all that was, was setting aside money to reimburse physicians to provide the proper counseling for people about end-of-life care. And because of Republican tactics, that got stripped from the bill. And so we really not made a lot of meaningful reform in our country around end-of-life care in quite a long time. And it's one of those pieces where we just continue to fall short for, the reality is you're much more likely to die in this country spending $80,000 a day in an ICU because that's what gets paid for instead of at your home surrounded by your loved ones with adequate care to manage your pain and symptoms because that's how our structure, that's how we're structured. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, you know, not only is there like a moral component to all this, and there's obviously an economic impact on the family and the businesses and organizations that, that give time off, but it's, you know, most of the cost of healthcare come in those final three months. Yep. And when you look at the cost driving our Medicare system and others, it's really the end of life that is not providing what most people want and what most of their family members want. So it's a, this strange mismatch of, of resources to give people what they, what they would prefer to, to not have, uh, not be spending money on. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So I just want to wrap up here with, you know, ask a little bit of, for your advice. So if we got somebody who's maybe listening to this podcast and they are, you know, they're interested in politics, they've been engaged, but they haven't decided to, to run for office and maybe they're in, you know, in a, a community in Ohio, what do you tell them about how to find a path to public service and, and what the future looks like for especially, you know, progressive people who, who are maybe in red, hopefully soon to be blue, but right now red states? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing I say to people who are thinking about, you know, what do I do? How do I get involved? Should I run? Should I not? Is Decision, the first rule of life, right, is decisions are made by the people who show up. So be a person who shows up, even if that means that maybe you're showing up as a concerned citizen at a council meeting, or you're showing up with your friends and family to push them a little farther on some of those topics that maybe make them uncomfortable around economic justice or racial justice or gender justice. Being that voice is super important. And for those who think that they're maybe ready to take the jump and and formalize their activism by in a different way by running for office, I say absolutely do it. And you don't have to do it alone. There are, and, and I imagine this is true in every state, there are great training programs out there. There's great cohort-based programs that can help you learn uh, more about the actual tactics of how you succeed at running for office. 
but also just gave you some of that moral support of how you find kind of a community of like-minded friends who are either on a similar journey or are from your kind of similar counties or, or cities to yours where maybe the, the fight is a little bit of a longer term uh, proposition. And so my advice to them is to call their state party or to call their county party or to go online and look at progressive training organizations. In Ohio, for example, we have a great program called Lead Ohio that runs incredible training programs for progressive candidates across the state at all levels of government. So those tools and resources are out there. You just got to know where to ask and, and who to look to to find that help. But the last thing I'd say is to reach out and ask another elected official who you admire for advice. And don't feel weird or guilty about like just looking them up off the website and sending them an email. I will tell you that the number of times I get asked for to talk with someone who's interested in running for office is actually fairly low. But whenever someone does ask, I always say yes, because I think it's so important for us to reach out a hand to help pull people up with us as we climb. I think that's exactly right. That's why I don't think people understand just how small a world, especially at the county or city level, the folks who are actually getting engaged. And so when new people show up and are willing to lend a hand or jump in, I, they're almost always welcomed with open arms. Yep, exactly right. So I just want to take a moment and thank you for not only joining us on the podcast today, but also just your service. I mean, not to not only serve your county, but now to serve the state, which is a, as, as you mentioned, a battleground state that, that has an impact on the entire United States. I'm grateful that you're you're putting in the time and taking such a thoughtful approach to public policy. I think we, we need a lot more of that. And I'm hopeful uh, we, with leaders like you, we'll be heading in a, in a better direction on end-of-life care and everything else. Thank you so much for that kind comment. And I'm so grateful, Ryan, that you had me here today. It was so great to talk with you and also so grateful to be a part of New Deal because I think it's been such a help for me as I think about policy and how I move my county forward. Yeah, and I can't wait. Uh, hopefully we'll be back together in person. <laughs> sometime this year uh and i can hear more about uh your work across ohio it'll be it'll be great to see you you too thank you so much all right thank you thanks for listening to an honorable profession please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable boots road group produces podcasts i'm ryan coonerty and because we keep things honorable no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast Mm -hmm.